Joshua chapter 23. After a long time had passed, and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then old and well advanced in years, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am old and have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all the nations for your sake. It was for the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for you, your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered between the Jordan and the Great Sea in the west. The Lord your God himself will drive them out of your way. He will push them out before you, and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke their names of the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. You, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routs a thousand, because the Lord your God fights for you, just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now I am about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of you of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as every good promise of the Lord your God has come true, so the Lord will bring on you all the evil he has threatened until he has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. This is the word of the Lord. Here in these last two chapters, we see what forms sort of an, an epilogue to the book of Joshua. This chapter, chapter 23, in many respects, actually mirrors chapter 1 and forms a bookend for chapter 1. As we begin chapter 23, Joshua is approximately 110 years old. Chapter 23 takes place a little over 20 years after Joshua 22. And this chapter presents what is, is the first of two sets of last words for Joshua. But this here isn't really his, his last words. It's actually his penultimate words or his second to last words. We'll see next week his last words, Joshua's famous last words in, jo in Joshua chapter 24. But here in chapter 23... Joshua gathers the leaders of Israel and the people of Israel, and his focus is mainly on the leadership. 
And then next week, he's going to be focusing on the people in general. But what he teaches the leaders here, they are responsible to teach to the people. And he is giving a charge to the leaders to pass on to the people so that they understand what needs to be done, so that they understand again who God is, and so that they understand how they are to obey him and how they are to rest in his promises. So like chapter 21, chapter 23 is full of promises and precepts. And this shouldn't be no surprise because promises and precepts really form the theme of the entire book of Joshua. In this chapter, we're going to see the promises that God has already fulfilled, and we're going to see the promises that at this time in Israel's history were yet to be fulfilled. And tied to those promises are a series of precepts or commands that must be obeyed in order for the promises to be given. So first of all, God's promises. As I said, there's two types of promises in this passage, those that have already been fulfilled and those that have yet to be fulfilled. So here at the end of Joshua, we see that once again, God has kept his promises. He has given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies. He has given the land of Canaan into the hands of the Israelites just as he promised that he would. He promised that they would, he would give them the land and that they would prevail over their enemies. Remember, God had said back in Joshua 1, verses 2 to 5, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So this was the promise that God had given personally to Joshua and by extension to the entire nation of Israel. If you remember, the land was first promised Abraham back in Genesis 12 when God told Abraham that he would give the land of Canaan to his descendants. And then God formalized the promise with with covenants, formal covenants in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. In chapter 15 of Genesis, God commanded Abraham to sacrifice animals. And then if you remember, God put Abraham into a deep sleep and then passed between the entrails of those animals, signifying that God was upholding both parts of the covenant. That even though this was a covenant between God and Abraham, that it was God ultimately who would be upholding the covenant. And then in Genesis 17, God again promised Abraham that he'd give give him the land of Canaan. And it was here that, that Abraham's name was changed from Abram to Abraham. And the sign of this covenant was a sign of of circumcision. Then God extended that promise that had been given first to Abraham onto Moses out of the burning bush in Genesis or in Exodus 3:17, where God said to Moses, I promise that I will bring you up 
out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so throughout the book of Joshua, we have seen this take place. We have seen against insurmountable odds, seemingly insurmountable odds, the way God has delivered the land out of the hands of the heathen into the hands of his chosen people. And how God used his chosen people as instruments of destruction to bring out his vengeance on those sinful nations. And then so God has, has given this land. That's what we have just seen with the, the, the allocation of the land that God has given an, an inheritance to his people just as he promised. So then Joshua, in one of his final acts of leadership, calls the nation together, especially the leadership, and reminds them of all that God had done for them. He reminds them of the military victories, of the partitioning of the land, and of the completion of the settlement. So he says in verse 3 of our chapter, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Then in verse 4, they're reminded that he has allotted this land to them as their inheritance. And then in verses 9 and 10, Joshua elaborates, For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts a thousand to flight, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. And then Joshua says in verse 14, And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed from all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All of them have come to pass. Not one of them has failed. So brothers and sisters, we can sit here today and we can say with Joshua that not one of the promises that God has given us has failed. Every single thing that he promised has come to pass. And for those things that have yet to come to pass in our lives, we can trust that just as God has been faithful so far, so he will remain faithful to the end. Now, when I first introduced the book of Joshua back in, in May, I explained that, that one of the main themes of Joshua is that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises because God is faithful. It is one of the key aspects of who he is. He is the promise-keeping God. He can be trusted to do whatever he says he is going to do. There is not one promise that he has ever made to anybody that has ever gone unfulfilled. Now, there's a Hebrew word that describes this sense of God's character, this aspects, aspect of God's character in the way that he deals with his people. The word is hesed, which roughly translated means loving kindness. Now, that, that sort of captures a little bit of it, but hesed actually goes much deeper than that. Hesed actually not only includes love and kindness, but it also includes mercy, devotion, 
and faithfulness. That sums up who God is in his dealings with his people. So in our passage this morning, there's not only things that have been fulfilled. He has given them the people the land. But there are also promises that are yet to be fulfilled. Notice in verse 5 that Joshua shifts to the future tense. He said, the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess the land just as the Lord your God promised you. So there's a future element here to his promises. God had said that the Amalekites would be destroyed. But they weren't destroyed here in the book of Joshua. In fact, it was not for many, many years until the Amalekites would be utterly destroyed. They were finally destroyed under King David in 1 Samuel 30. Likewise, it wasn't until King David that the Jebusites were defeated when David took Jerusalem from the hands of the Jebusites. So brothers and sisters, we need to remember that we serve the exact same promise-keeping God that Joshua served. God hasn't changed. He is the same yesterday, he is the same today, and he is the same forever. So I need to ask you, and to ask you, what promises from Scripture do you need to hold on to today? We understand the promises of God in a way that is far more profound and far more powerful and far more personal than Joshua and the people of Israel could have ever understood because we are living on the other side of the cross. Remember in in Hebrews 4 that the, the Lord said through the writer of Hebrews that Joshua could not have given the people rest that there was a future rest coming, not just for for national Israel, but for spiritual Israel. And beloved, we are spiritual Israel. So the gospel promises, the promises that we see that come through the cross, are the promises that we need to grab hold of with both hands. So are you grieving over a trial that you are currently facing? Christian, God has promised that he would never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13.5 Are you struggling with temptation? God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will provide for you a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Are you getting older and do you feel your strength and your health failing? His grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Are you anxious about the future? By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and that he will give you his peace which passes all understanding and he will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. So do you get the picture? Whatever trial you are currently facing, whatever trial you will face, there is a gospel promise that will help you 
to get through that trial victoriously by God's strength. But there is one overarching promise in Scripture that will help you through anything that you face. It's the gospel itself. Turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. Titus 3, 4 to 7. You'll read again of the goodness and the loving kindness of God. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in our righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There is no greater example of the hesed of God than the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to know the faithfulness and the loving kindness and the mercy of our God, look to the cross of Christ. Look to a crucified Savior who was so loving to his Father and so loving to his people that he gladly gave himself over to the executioner, that he gladly gave himself over to the wrath of God in your place and my place. But don't stop reading there in Titus 3, verse 7. You need to read on. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, you've heard me say this many times. Although we are saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. True faith produces fruit. So what kind of of fruit does true faith produce? It produces love and it produces obedience. So we're now moving on to the other main focus of this passage, God's precepts. God's precepts. Just as there were two types of promises in this chapter, there are also two types of precepts, the command to love and the command to obey. Joshua says in verse 6 of our passage, Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Therefore, because of all that God had done for them, they were to be obedient to God. Brothers and sisters, because of all that God has done for you in Christ Jesus, and because of all that God will do for you, keep his commandments. 
Notice here that the keeping of God's commandments are grounded in God's faithfulness. He says, therefore, therefore do this. Because of who God is, because of God's faithfulness, obey him. But also the keeping of God's commandments must be grounded in love for God. Look at verse 11. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Another therefore. Love for God is grounded in God's faithfulness. We love God because of all that he has done for us, because of all that he will do for us. Because he has kept his promises for Israel, his chosen people, they love him. Because of the way that he has been faithful to you, his chosen child, love him. Now, people don't normally think of love as a command. They, but throughout Scripture, we see that we are commanded to love. We're commanded to love. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. So I need to ask you here this morning, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. We all fall short of this in many ways, don't we? But let me ask, are you striving to do that? Are you striving to love God in that way and repenting when you fall short, confessing your sins to God, confessing your sins to one another? You see, when, when love and obedience are evident in your life, you will find great assurance of faith. If you are walking in, in disobedience, you have no grounds whatsoever for assurance. In fact, if the pattern of your life is one of disobedience, you really need to question whether you are legitimately saved. But when you are striving to obey, when you are confessing your sins and to God and trusting that he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness, as we read in 1 John 1, 9, we will find assurance. And that assurance will help you no matter what trial you are facing in your life. When you look at the problems that you are facing in the light of the gospel and in the light of your relationship with Jesus Christ, the problems you're facing pale in comparison to the promises that you have in Christ. And they become a lot smaller because God has become a lot bigger in your eyes. I remember a number of years ago, I was preaching on assurance of salvation from 1 John, and, and that's really the, the main theme of 1 John is about how you can know that you're saved and how you can tell whether the, the people around you also are saved. And, and John, the Apostle John, in that, in that book, lists, lists tests that help us to know whether we are legitimately saved. He presents the love test. So do you love God, and do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? He presents the doctrine, doctrine test. Do you believe what God says about you and what God says about himself in Holy Scripture? The obedience test. Are you doing 
what the Bible tells you to do. Now, during my research for that sermon, I read an excerpt from Jonathan Edwards' treatise on the religious affections. And if any of you have read Jonathan Edwards, he can be very, very tough on the flesh, not just because it can be difficult to read him, but because of the, the nature of the intimacy of his relationship with the Lord, reading Jonathan Edwards or, or reading his, his sermons can, can have the ability and the power of the Holy Spirit to, to pinpoint areas in your life that you need to grow. And so as I was preparing for this sermon on assurance of salvation, I was convicted over the lack of, of religious affections that I was feeling. Now, by, by affections, Jonathan Edwards means emotions. And what he's saying here is that do gospel promises stir up in you an emotional response? Now, I'm not talking here about a subjective experiential religion. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about do the gospel truths, does all that has been done for you in Christ Jesus cause you to well up with gratitude, with joy, with love? Think about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Notice there that, that most of those things are what we would refer to as an emotional response. It's a response to what God has done for you. But I want to ask you the question. When you consider the facts of the gospel, are they mere ideas in your brain, or do they produce a response in you? Do they produce that desire for God, that hunger for God, that love for God, that love for other people? Do they give you joy in the midst of difficult circumstances? Do they help you to remain patient and steadfast in the midst of trials? Now, of course, we don't do this perfectly. If you remember, I, I, I presented to you the illustration of a fruit tree. And if early in the, in the season, you were to see this, this, on an apple tree, this little nub of an apple, of an apple, and you said, oh, there's no fruit on this tree. There's no mature fruit. Cut down the tree. No, the fruit is there. It's just small. But there, there is evidence of fruit there, that reveals that there is life in the tree. However, if you come to September and you see that there is no fruit at all on this apple tree, at least no good fruit, no healthy fruit, it's an unhealthy tree. It needs to be cut down. And so... Jesus said, will happen to all trees that do not produce good fruit for God's glory. So ask yourself, what kind of fruit 
is being produced in my life. And here we don't stop with, with an emotional response. But do those things actually change the way you live your life? Let me ask you, what do you think of when you think of the word love? Do you think about hearts and roses and warm, fuzzy feelings? When I think about love, I think about a cross. I think about Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, who bore the punishment that I deserved, who bore the wrath of God in my place. That, beloved, is love. That is love. This was the greatest act of love towards God and towards his people that has been ever demonstrated in the history of the universe. And if you can stand, if you can stand in the face of that love and rebel against God and hate other people, I must question whether you really do love God. However, I trust here that for the vast majority, I am speaking to people who genuinely love God and are striving to follow the example of Jesus Christ. We are called to follow Jesus, not just to follow Jesus when it's easy, not just, what, not just called to follow Jesus to do the things that we enjoy doing. Not just to love the people that are easy to love. We are called to follow Jesus to the cross. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, Take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. I need you to listen very carefully to this. This is extremely important that you understand. I'm not talking here about taking a bullet for somebody. Maybe at some point in the future, God may call you to that. But I would argue that taking a bullet for somebody would be easier than the day in, day out loving other people, and sacrificing your sinful, selfish desires out of obedience for God and love for other people. That's hard. It's not just hard, it's impossible apart from God at work in you. You are called to love people who treat you shamefully. You are called to pray for those who despitefully use you. Are you doing that? I've been convicted of the way that I fall short of that, dreadfully short of that. And that is one of the, the, 
huge as blessings of being a pastor that I get to study these things all week. I get to chew on these things and meditate on these things and let the Word of God wash over me and convict me and bring me to repentance. And then I get the privilege of bringing the things to you that I have been preaching to myself all week. Beloved, I pray by the grace of God that you would do this. I pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work in you even now, convicting you of your sin in these areas and would cause you to flee to Christ, to go to the cross, to confess your sins to God, to confess your disobedience to him and ask for his strengthening, especially in the area of the way that we treat one another. You see, you can't divorce love and obedience. They go hand in hand. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Look at verses 11 to 13 of our passage. Joshua says, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Are you being careful? Are you being careful to love the Lord your God? He goes on, For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap to you a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. If you turn back, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations. The promise that the Lord would drive out the nations before the people is conditional upon their love and obedience of him. There's a, condition, a conditional element to the future promises. The fulfillment of the promises is contingent upon obedience. If they do not obey God's law, he will not fight for them. He will not give them the land. In fact, he will then turn and fight against them, just as he has fought against the heathen nations that he drove out before them. We've already seen this powerfully demonstrated in Joshua chapter 7 with the sin of Achan. We saw how Achan's disobedience led to the routing of Israel before the heathen armies and led to the death of 36 men of Israel. And it was not... It was not restored. God's, God's working for the people, God's fighting for the people was not restored until Joshua and the people of Israel stoned to death Achan and his family and gave up those things that Achan had stolen as a burnt offering to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, have we taken things that belong to the Lord? 
Have you held back from the Lord a part of your heart? Have you said to the Lord, I'll submit these areas to you, but I'm going to hang on to this one over here? Have you robbed from God in your tithes and offerings? Have you robbed from God in your love towards one another? Have you, loved, have you, have you robbed from God in the way that you've spent the time that he has given you? By pouring it out on sinful, selfish pleasure rather than on obedience to the Lord? Now, you may not, you may not have a little carved statue in your living room that you bow down to every morning. At least I certainly hope you don't. But what are the idols in your life? What are the things in your life that get in the way of your love to God and your love towards one another? A wise man once said that the human heart is an idol factory. Its natural disposition is to churn out idols, just like a Ford plant churns out Fords. Maybe there's some things in your life that may even be considered good, but you're letting them get in the way of your relationship with the Lord. So an idol is defined as anything that you serve above God. Let me list a few things here. Money. Property. Possessions. Friends. Family. Relationships. Respect. Relaxation, fun, ministry, career. Now, that's not an inclusive list, but you need to ask yourself, are these or other things in my life that, that may be morally neutral, are these things getting in the way of my love for God and my love for other people? If they are, they're idols, and they need to be cast down just as, as the, the, the statue of Dagon was cast down before the Ark of the Covenant with its arms and its head broken off. We need to cast down the idols in our lives. These things vie for our attention, and they try to usurp God on the throne of our hearts. So we need to fight against these things as though our life depended on it. And brothers and sisters, our lives do depend on it. John Owen said, we need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. God is commanding us to be strong and of good courage. God is commanding us to love and to obey him. But fellow Christian, take heart. 
Because whenever God gives a precept, he also gives a promise. And all of these promises point to Jesus Christ. For all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 2 Corinthians 1.20 God himself, God the Son, fully obeyed all of his precepts for you and for I. You can't do it. You can't love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. You can't do that for five minutes. Now we know that God is at work in us and strengthening us and giving us a desire and changing our hearts and making us want to strive for these things. We are dependent on the Holy Spirit to give us those desires and we are dependent on Jesus Christ to fill up every area in which we are woefully lacking. You will never break down the idols of your heart unless God is at work in you. But brothers and sisters, God is at work in you. The charge to obey God is grounded in his promises. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Yes, we work. We do work. But we work because God is at work in us, giving us the desire, let alone the ability to obey him. Beloved, God is faithful. Just as he was faithful to the people of Israel, so he is faithful to you, spiritual Israel. He will keep his promises to you. Philippians 1.6 I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus will finish what he started. Take hope, Christian. Let's pray.